drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. This really is episode 48 of Drive-By Cinema. I'm here with my co-host Paul. And I'm here to pregnant pause at this moment. He's got what it takes to be a legend. <laughs> right, yeah, so 48, uh, episode 48, it feels like this is never going to end. What happened to episode 47, Mandy? Everyone is wondering. I didn't give any uh. explanation when I published last week's episode as The Lighthouse, which I announced as episode 48, and Mandy, which we trailed in the previous week. We had. It disappeared. Into the annals of despair. Or the annals, sorry. <laughs> Let us just say that one member of the drive-by cinema team, <laughs> who shall remain unnamed, made an error with the recording, rendering the entire episode useless and unpublishable. Would, would that be the kind of error when Microsoft change, upgrade your office, then suddenly you lose all your emails and it's your fault somehow when you call support? That really? Yeah, uh, well... I'm not sure we can blame Microsoft for this one. No, no, no. But I think that person made, you know, that made the error last week, you know, had a problem with his emails disappearing when when Windows Office was being upgraded. And and you insisted that uh, it had to be his problem, not Microsoft Office's problem. And yet, when he went to the the help area of the office.com or whatever, there were thousands of people on exactly the same day quoting exactly the same problem, Richard. Right, well, memories well, are short, aren't they? Whichever member of the team had that problem, <laughs> they've obviously overcome it. and They have. This- However, that member of the team isn't necessarily going to admit that it was his error, or rather he was under the impression that Audacity did a little boo-boo. Drive-by cinema is a collective responsibility establishment. And sponsored by Audacity. So uh, that's probably the reason that we can't poo-poo Audacity at this moment. When one of us makes a mistake... We both, we both suffer the consequences and take full responsibility. We both carry that burden. We do, yeah. So, although one of us likes to humiliate the other publicly in in the next podcast. (laughs) Paul, we are both humiliated by the information that we're sharing. Yes. So, uh, dear listeners, deep apologies for well, not not doing an episode on Monday. Although I think we could, if we wanted to, discuss it very briefly. I think we can cover it now because it's quite straightforward, Mm. isn't it? It's it's a Nicholas Cage film. Mm. Nicholas Cage is going to go mad. His girlfriend gets abducted and then burnt before his eyes by yeah. a cult-like organisation, which was formed because... They want to go to the moon and become Jesus. Because a singer felt he didn't get the recognition he deserved. Wow. And then went crazy and started abducting women and making people follow wow. him. And Do you know, Richard, I think these one-minute summaries are somehow better than our podcast. I made a joke... About the same thing happening to Prokel Harum, who started out with really has a one hit wonder band in a way, uh, and didn't get the same recognition as, say, Pink Floyd, and winding up in the early 2000s, starting to abduct girls away from education as ex- Islamic extremists. And you didn't get the joke at all, so it didn't really oh, well, work. I, I, I did later when you pointed it out to me. Nicolas Cage forges his own axe and kills everybody who has wronged him in the film. Sometimes, but incredibly, he does it whilst high on drugs, other people's oh, yeah. drugs, and he gets high and on he's drugs shoveled too. up. The whole thing is a grindhouse movie with some striking imagery that's come right off the front cover of some heavy metal album covers. 
Yeah, art. Art brush art. Uh, airbrush art, I think we decided it was called. Yeah? Fantasy airbrush art. We stumbled over that for a, for a while. The other thing to say is, you know, there, there is something of a, a social commentary here or something like that. It's set in the early, mid-80s. It's. It, I think it's saying, how deep does the rock go in society? Because the church, or the, the little wooden church in the forest that these uh, people looking to escape earth and join Jesus in the sky, they're in cahoots with a biker gang who've got too high on acid and become BDSM gay bikers on acid. And they do all kinds of trades, you know, they sacrifice the cult members to the to the bikers in order for the bikers to do their dirty work for them. So, yeah, there's all that going on too. In some total, it's, it's, it's a hot pot of mess, really. I think it's a film that wanted to exist just so they could have a fight, two men with chainsaws, <laughs> one of them which was six feet in length or more. I think that's yeah. why the film exists. But I think we were quite annoyed by how slow it was for the first 20 minutes. It's literally Nicholas's uh, character and his uh, girlfriend, who's a who's a budding fantasy artist, led in bed kind of mumbling very slowly to each other, is it not? And who has one eye that's bigger or blacker than the other. Yeah, a bit skewiff. Yeah. yeah. Quite strange. So, uh, there was something I did like, and I can't remember what it was. Maybe it was the music. The back, or the, um, the I think it was the imagery, the the beautiful sky that they had, and you know that weird place that they lived in, all glass in the middle of the woods. Yeah, yeah. Did we recommend it overall, Mandy? No, I think I gave it a very low score. It's a big slice of Nicolas Cage, isn't it? And if you like Nicolas Cage, and I do. mugging at the camera with a crazed look in his eye, there's plenty to work with here. <laughs> That was it. I did like the fact that Nicholas joined his own Nicholas Cage school of acting for a short, well, quite a long time in the movie, and was wild, wild-eyed, big, buggy, you know, huge, bulbous eyeballs, whilst his face was drenched in other people's blood, and he was screaming and cackling and doing those Nicholas Cage moments. So yeah, I mean, it's enjoyable if you like Nicholas Cage doing his particular take on acting. Now, at the start of that episode, was I correcting myself, congratulating myself about "Let the Right One In"? I'm trying to tell Potentially, people... Potentially, yes. I think I was trying to tell people a bunch of stuff about the relationship between Hakan and Ellie in Let the Right One In. Yes, you were. And, and on, our Discord, uh, on our Discord channel, there's been lots of discussion further to this after we recorded Mandy. So uh, there's probably much more for you to say about that right now, Richard. Well, really, had had we published that episode, I would now be having to sort of retract ah, what good I had job said. Them. Exactly, exactly. But we can now say, thanks to Alistair, that in the book that Let the Right One In was taken from, it is revealed that Hakan ah. was a paedophile who had tried to molest Ellie, and she had, in turn, as revenge, as turned him into her thrall and forced him to look after her. Wow. So that's quite dark. Didn't know that. Didn't see that. You didn't get that in the movie, actually. It was very much And also ambiguous. that she was a boy. Yes, and that she'd been attacked by a vampire who'd castrated her. Or him. Is that something that vampires do to each other? Or do to the, the, the victims? The brethren. Yeah, I, I don't know. So, yeah, somewhat darker, perhaps, than we'd originally anticipated from the movie itself. No, it was a bundle of joy, that movie, wasn't it, really, when you consider it? I think we enjoyed it, though. I think we liked that film. We did, yeah. All right. Okay, sorry, there's one more thing to say in terms of corrections. I was was on about 
apparently, uh, sperm counts decreasing. I'm not sure which episode this was, Richard. Oh, yeah, Paul, I have to say, who is it, by the way, that you get to answer and respond on Discord? Because, I mean, it's not like you, is it? I mean, it's someone, on Discord, it's someone who reads scientific articles and (laughs) looks up references and responds intelligently to, to the interlocutor on Discord. Presumably, you get someone to do it for you. Do you? Is it like why is that not my is that not my podcast persona, Richard? It's not the voice. It's not the same voice. No, Paul. I don't know. Uh, well, I do have a friend, and she's a practicing. Uh, she was a practicing psychotherapist, but now she's a practicing oh. practicing counselor, oh. and she actually looks at uh, sperm counts, no. dissociative personality disorders DRDs. of the non clinical variety, which is oh. to say, personality clusters or personality. Oh. Constellations of personalities, what she likes to call it. So yeah, it might be that's might be what's happening. You know, my my or, public my or, public Discord persona is is there to entertain in a Lauren Hardy kind of way, and I, I really can't <laughs> fit in the thinking whilst I'm doing that, Richard. So I'll take Full your backhanding compliment with with, with 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 grace. Thank you very much. Full credit to Discord Paul, who did engage. Bring out the best in me. You you very rightly, I think, retracted your position that. Uh, oh, th- this idea that there's been falling sperm counts has been debunked, really, hasn't it? Oh, no, it hasn't, really. I think it has. Because it's a sampling error, isn't it? Because the early ah, yes. the, the early uh, sort of counts were all done from well-fed, the first world, sure, yeah. white people. And then when they start to expand out and explore... You know the third world, as it were, and less privileged people. Then, oh, well, they found the sperm counts are lower, but that's just because they've spread the net a bit wider, isn't it? Doesn't mean sperm counts are falling on average. People who lived in straightened circumstances probably always had lower sperm counts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but well, well yes, but I don't think that was the point I was originally trying to make. Although we could have gone that direction in whatever podcast it was that we talked about this. I think the point I was making was that. Uh, I don't know which podcast this was. I think it was but, the Lighthouse one, where you were talking uh, about sperm quite a lot. I mean, I, conservatively, I would say about 40% of the podcast was you talking about sperm. I was not talking about sperm. Oh, well, let's say semen, then. Let's broaden it out to semen. Because obviously they were semen, uh, both of them. No, you, you, were, you were enthusing about masturbation and saying that I was, I was getting excited by it. <laughs> Are you denying that? You know, who knows? Well, I don't know. You were seen. I think you were trying to cast your sins onto me somehow. Right. Have we done with corrections there? No. No, I oh. have to take issue with the idea that sperm counts aren't decreasing. Oh. Okay. Again, it just feels like you're projecting again, Paul. You've been, been counting your own, have you? <laughs> I think what I was talking about was anal genital, anal genital distance in newborns originally. What? Distance? AGD or the perineum. That's, you know. The, the skin between the anus and the scrotum. Right. What's this got yeah. to do with anything? Well, it's highly differentiated. You know, newborn females and newborn males, there's, there's a factor of two between the two in, in that distance. And what, between between what exactly? What, sorry? The the anus and the the, the back of the <laughs> vagina or, or, or the scrotum. Uh, well, obviously, the, there's a big sex. difference between newborn females and males. Sure. There is, but less so, less and less so. Uh, and so this is actually decreasing. And that is the result of the phthalates, I think. Okay. Well, in, the, it, in the environment. Is it significant? 
It is a significant decrease, yeah. Well, what, what difference does it make? Well, it leads to low, critically low sperm count. Why? Well, the two are connected. Oh. I'm not, I'm not seeing a causal relationship here. There I'm isn't, hearing. but there's a correlation, isn't there? If, if the pri- one of the primary sexual, prepubertal sexual characteristics, differentiating sexual characteristics, which is AGD, or the distance between those two points in the body, is less differentiated, then we also see on maturity critically low sperm counts in males. So you need your balls as far away from your ass in order yeah. to have a high sperm count. You do, yeah. Wow. Okay. I don't think I was talking about this, was I? <laughs> I've certainly never heard this claimed before. <laughs> I don't know why it matters, Paul. You only need one of the damn things to make a baby. And you you, you usually have trillions of them. It's incredibly wasteful. Ah, yeah, true. Quality of sperm is actually highly associated with AGD distance in, uh, 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 in infancy. There you go. Quality, not quantity. You don't need that many. Stop counting them and just start checking out whether they're any good or not. Right. Let's talk about this week's film. No, let's talk about sperm some more. Oh, okay. No, no, let's, let's not. Okay. I take your point. I was obsessing about sperm in whatever. <laughs> in whatever. Oh, you, you've suddenly had in a moment whatever. of, <laughs> moment of whatever self-consciousness. No, you were saying I was highly excited about Patterson's masturbation. I wasn't. No, I was okay. simply reading from my notes that came up on Amazon tidbits, the Amazon, I don't know what you call them, the notes on the movie that come up on screen, which I'd, I'd written down before I started watching the movie. So I, I don't take that one, Richard, on the nose or on the chin, lightly. Or on your perineum. Oh, I might do that. Well, Paul, this was your suggestion? It was, yes. So I should know the name of the movie, and it is Gummo. And I think you had an agenda here somehow. I mean, you've seen this before, right? I have. I've, I've seen much of his, his collection. Harmony Corin. Yeah, Harmony Corin. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know this isn't a hard and fast rule. I know we've broken it before. But it doesn't really fall into the category of things you haven't seen whilst you were away in China because they don't let you watch films in China. That was a new rule you invented later that I adopted simply to be pleasant. It was almost the whole point of... Starting this podcast, I thought. To some extent. I mean, weren't we supposed to be charting, you know, our descent into craze madness during lockdown also? I mean, there were several reasons for starting this podcast. Well, if we're talking about charting a crazed descent into madness during lockdown, then this movie fits right in. I've got to admit. I'm not sure there's any descent. I think, I think we'd start off <laughs> completely bonkers and end up completely bonkers in this movie. So, but Harmony Corrin is an important filmmaker he is he's fam- most famous for kids isn't he which i think was kids be- was his it was his first movie you know so it was before gummo kids yeah. famously features well kids you know teenagers i think in new york hanging around on rooftops during the hiv joints. period yes and having Skating. underage sex with one another and skateboarding between moments of having sex yeah and it was controversial because it's underage kids having sex and how would you characterize Harmony as a filmmaker? You said you've seen all of his work. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just fascinated by him, by, by, by the earlier version of Harmony. Because, of course, you know, he's become part of the Hollywood beast these days. He had a big hit in 2000. Eventually, he had a big... I mean, Kids was a big hit and made him money. This one, Gummo, lost a good few million. I don't know how it costs what it costs to make. <laughs> but it, it costs a lot of money to make. 
Uh, and then he got hit in maybe 2013, 2014, which I've not seen. Uh, I haven't seen his later work. And that was, you know, about a gambling den or, or a strip joint or something in Las Vegas, kind of like, you know, coyote, coyote ugly goes to Las Vegas, very much aimed at the mainstream punter kind of thing. There's one called Spring Breakers, I think. Is it Spring Break? Spring Breakers? It could be that one, yeah. yeah. It it, that that one. seems very mainstream from the description. It is very mainstream, yeah. yeah. Which, yeah. which is seen as, again... Obviously, Harmony is supposed to be kind of a countercultural, uh, you know, iconoclast, isn't he? He's trying to make films that are against the normal run of things. You can say that again, yeah. I think by him making that very mainstreamy movie... Was himself again trying to be different? Yeah, yeah. but by conforming, suddenly he's now running counter to his own narrative. It's kind he of perverse. Is, he's, he's he's the contrarian's contrarian. Yes. There was one. <laughs> so I, this is the thing about him. I find him fascinating as a personality, and also I'm finding quite interested as a writer and director. Props to him, for, you know, writing and directing kids at whatever age it was. I think you know, barely twenty one or twenty two, and you know, using child actors and doing the uh, hardcore, a real cinema thing that was popular at the time in art house circles kind of stuff. Uh, and I, I, there was a big furore about it, lots of excitement and hype, uh, saying, you know, he's the next big thing. You know, he's mm. this guy is incredible. And so I got interested in him by accident because, you know, on YouTube, I like to watch some old David Letterman reruns. And it was just harmony. It was like, you know, 15 minutes of harmony appearing on David Letterman either to promote kids before it came out or he was on that on David Letterman because kids had been a you know a splash of a success mm. and I was just fascinated by this kid that came on and uh, just was obviously in some sort of way high as a kite <laughs> but spoke a completely different generational language to David Letterman yeah and that's what reminded me of him because at the moment, you know, two years, three years ago, you know, the old boomer millennial and boomer generation Z, this 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 cultural divide that's opened up mostly on Facebook, but it's the only place I think that these generations really share a space and conversation. And it just reminded me of him and David Letterman because, you know, David Letterman at the time was, you know, quite, I wouldn't say with it, but, he, you know, he was a respected broadcaster, slightly left-field broadcaster. And yet, when he was interviewing Harmony... It was just, it was just a clash of, a clash of worlds, a complete misunderstanding of what the other person was saying, mostly from David Letterman's side. You was know? it like just, uh, the Sex Pistols and Reg Grundy? On it was exactly <laughs> like that, yeah. But without, I, I, I think you know, Harmony obviously knew that David was taking the piss, but David didn't know that Harmony was taking the piss back. <laughs> yeah, and uh, much like his mo- movies, Harmony would go on these these long winded divergent sort of rambling <laughs> soliloquies about nothing to do with the question uh, that David asked. And uh, David just couldn't handle it. It was not that he you know, was annoyed, but he just he just wasn't used to a guest being so at ease yeah. and just ignoring the the protocol of a, of a TV interview, just thoroughly flouting all the rules. <laughs> And so it was fascinating. And so then, there's, then I went to the annals of uh, the annals of uh, YouTube and, and found his next two appearances on David Letterman, one for Gummo and one for the movie afterwards, which I briefly forget the name of. 
Uh, and then there was no fourth appearance because he got banned on the third one because apparently it came out 10 years later that he was high on whatever and had gone into the dressing room. This is Harmony. Had gone into the dressing room of the female star, you know, someone like Bette Midler who was appearing alongside him. And David walked in to see where Bette was or whoever it was. I'm not quite sure who it was. And said, Bette, are you ready to come on stage? And he found Harmony rifling through her handbag and taking her money and everything in there <laughs> and banned him and banned him from the show. So, you know, he really is wild. He's, you know, he was, oh yeah, he's in these days, but at the time, you know, he was just off kilter and somewhat out of control. I think that makes him quite interesting as a personality. There's nothing, there wasn't very much fake about him. I don't think it was an affected stance. It certainly was as a stance that he took and a person, a persona that he portrayed that he understood he was portraying, but I don't think it was very much fake about it, you know, and so. The early 90s is a very fake time in many respects, wasn't it? So uh, interesting in that respect. Not necessarily for the quality of his filmmaking, as we'll find out in a few minutes. So, Richard, what did you what did you think to start off with? I just want to say, you know, whereas we might normally launch early early doors into an explanation of what happened to the movie. Oh, yeah, good luck with that. It's, yeah, it's quite difficult to do that with Gummo, isn't it? I mean, I could, <laughs> I could summarise the movie as really a story of a cat, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> and a boy dressed as a rabbit, boy well, well, as a rabbit. rabbit. playboy ears I mean they kill mm. a cat within the first three minutes of the film mm. by drowning it in an oil drum of water which is provocative isn't it you gotta it, say. it is it's provocative in quite a in quite a silly way though isn't there a whole documentary about tracing the killer of a cat on, on the internet yeah yeah I was gonna say I mean showing people mistreating cats is your classic way to get super cancelled or hunted down by a angry mob on, on the internet. Yeah, there was a lady who was videoed on CCTV putting a cat into a wheelie bin, closing the lid. And, yeah, she, I think, just some kind of internet mob hunted it down, I think. Yeah, so a bold and provocative move to kill a cat in the opening view, well, the opening scene of your film. They don't indiscriminately kill cats. Shortly after that, they stay the hand of someone who's going to kill a cat that they said was a domestic cat or someone's house cat. So they're really after only feral cats, you might argue, it's a public service. And indeed, they're sort of getting paid to do this, it turns out. So this is in Ohio, isn't it? The state of Ohio. Xenia, in, in, a, in a town that's called Xenia. And something really bad has happened in Xenia. It's, it's almost like post-apocalyptic, and but it's not post-apocalyptic because they obviously can't afford the set that that will require. So instead, there's been a really bad <laughs> tornado. Is that right? And somehow all society ah, yeah. has ended. The story is that a tornado has destroyed the town or ripped through it and yeah. seems to have killed several people who are important to the characters in the film, I think. I must say, I didn't really get that, that tornado thing. I think it might be mentioned in the opening monologue, the opening narration. Yeah. Perhaps I wasn't concentrating hard enough. There is a shot later, much later in the film, like when they're remembering a tornado and you can see some sort of grainy footage of a tornado happening. I, I picked this up mostly by reading the Wikipedia entry afterwards. But yeah, I read somewhere, I think, that it was going to be, the story was going to be set after an earthquake. But a tornado fits perfectly well for the Midwest where I suppose it's set. Hmm. Yeah, as you say, they can't afford to depict it truly sort of post-apocalyptic. But that's not what I got from this film. This, this film seems to be about the nihilistic kind of uh, life of people living in real, you know, poverty and poor conditions of a, you know, very run-down 
small town kind of American. Sure. So my, my, my point here is, you know, in terms of artistry, at what point does is this different from a documentary about him making a movie of his mates living like that? Yeah. As opposed to getting his mates to act in a movie living like that. I didn't really understand well, that's a really... what was going on here. <laughs> One of the most interesting things about the movie is the way it was made, right? And you said, hmm. you know, you talked about the budget or whatever, but I mean, there were only five actor-actors in this movie. Most of the parts, a lot of the the parts and the supporting cast were played by people Harmony found on the streets or the place in Nashville where it was filmed. And he That's just sort right. of invited them to be on the movie. It is almost like a documentary in a way, weirdly. You know, comparing <laughs> this movie to other movies is sort of a pointless exercise. There is a can. There is an element of his good friend's Werner Herzog's film style that comes through. It's the whispered nar- nar- narration that one of the <laughs> the whispered narration that one of the cast does. I think it's is he called Solomon or something? So yeah, I mean Richard, you're I mean you're a fan of Japanese concrete art that explores <laughs> negative space. Yeah, do you not see parallels here in this in this great art that uh, Harmony has created? Is it he destroying the idea of film narrative very cleverly, or is it just random stuff? It's hard to decide, really, isn't it? It's collage, isn't it? He's doing video collage. Mm. Not only in terms of the narrative, which is a patchwork of different scenes that don't really relate to one another. There's a sort of through line through this cat thing where these two Uh, boys are shooting cats with air guns. (laughs) Except for the one that they don't shoot. Except that by the end they do. And that seems to be the message of the movie in, in broad terms, is the cat is dead by the end. I mean, yes, it's collage. It's also, you know, there are small portraits, individual actors' portraits, you know, for a minute or two. Yeah. Then we get these kind of little vignettes, you know, yeah. little two or three actor scenes. There's one with his mother where they're tap dancing and he's weightlifting and in, in a messy, a beautiful scene, in a messy actually. laundry room. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was the nearest that the film got to feeling like a stage film. I thought that that scene. I've re- I read that it's seventy percent scripted. So despite yeah. the fact that it, maybe he didn't have very you know many professional actors and he was trying to express something about a town because I, I read that Harmony grew up in the place or a place like if not the place where they filmed it. Mm-hmm. So it, in a sense it's sort of autobiographical and it seems to have been scripted. But what was scripted? I don't know. What was, what was the story? It's not clear. Well, if you watch one David Letterman, you know you, you know that Harmony says, you know, I met this guy in this small town once when I was doing something like Jack Kerouac traveling randomly, and he said something weird, you know. And a lot of the movies about this, you know, it's yeah. about it's about the characters sit down and say, oh well, I met this guy and he did this, you know, and I met this guy and he had. Uh, there's one there's one character that tells jokes or he's like pretending he's doing stand up. And it's kind of, it just sounds a bit like Harmony's voice, a lot of it. He was saying, you know, oh, I met this guy and he hadn't eaten for a week. And uh, I said, don't worry, the food will still taste the same kind of thing. It was, it was like a joke about doing crap stand up. <laughs> and and then there's lots of it where his mates are just like in a kind of, you know, divey, trashy house party where they're fighting, wrestling with an armchair or wrestling with wrestling a steel, with, yeah, chair, steel yeah. dining chair and wreck it kind of thing. <laughs> Which is, you know, I've seen similar things 20 or 30 years ago at parties. And yeah, it's something that my parents' generation would not understand. And something I think that, you know, that uh, Generation Z wouldn't understand necessarily to the great majority of them. So, you know, people stuck in a boring town doing maybe destructive things to, to get a kick. I mean, I think many of us that were brought up with a Darth of Media 
to entertain ourselves would understand that, wouldn't they? But yeah, so provocative, perhaps. I, I, I did like the the entry monologue. I think it was whispered by one of the actors where this this huge tornado came into town and people were flung up in the air. <laughs> I saw a girl thrown in the air and I, I looked at her knickers. <laughs> just kind of those, you know, this is this is harmony just talking, but quite quite funny. And what was he saying? You know, people were cutting too. There were necklaces hanging from trees. And then he has a shot of electricity pylons hanging like a necklace. So, you know, he, he says something about the, de- you know, the development of American capitalism and just, it's a, tor- a brain, you know, a mindless tornado that we don't really understand and all this electricity just hanging there for us. So I think some of the shots and some of the dialogue do connect in quite a thoughtful way. Oh, the, the shots. Now, he got a famous French d- uh, DP, didn't he, a director of photography, to uh, do this. That's where the budget went. Well, that French guy took a big cut on his normal fees to do uh, this film because of kids, because of Harmony's reputation. He wanted to work with Harmony. One thing I have to say about this film is the photography in this film is quite quite stunning. I think it is really well filmed. Even in... Parts of this film where, I mean, there are huge parts of this film where nothing is happening or nothing appealing is happening. <laughs> but nonetheless, it's filmed beautifully. To me, it felt like a sort of 90s edgy art fashion magazine with all those pictures of rundown yeah. America come to life kind of thing uh, on screen. Oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. Beautifully filmed. Really amazing. Yeah, I think that that really slotted in with with his style of storytelling, whatever that story is, which doesn't seem to be very much of a story, but which is I met this guy once and through the mundanity of existence, something weird or interesting happened. And so there's lots of there's lots of documenting of the minutiae of life here, but the weird minutiae of life. And I think at the time it would have been relevant because, you know, small town was occurring, life was passing underneath it on a fast motor on a fast highway and it wasn't being recorded as such was it so i think he was trying to document something here a lifestyle or a way of living that was very free and detached from society you know so we get the little boy at the beginning in his little uh sort of play by rabbit ears and he's literally stood on a litter strewn overpass and beneath him the highway roars on and he's kind of doing disconnected things like he's climbing up the netting or, you know, he's peeing on the cars beneath, you know. There's a sense of alienation, a sense of disconnection, isn't there? So I, I, a thought has gone into what he's trying to express. And as you say, he had somebody great on the visuals to help him with it. But I don't think it necessarily hits home very often, does it? I, I said some dismissive things about Derek Charmer, mostly for last, last, last week. Uh, I do actually like Derek Drama films. Was that last week? Uh, was that in a podcast oh, that ended before. up being Who published? Who knows? Probably not. Who knows? It was probably about Seaman. We're not sure. But if I didn't or did, I don't no longer remember properly. However, you know, um, Derek Drama's Blue is a particular movie that I think has correlations with this in that it is a random montage. Uh, you might think that is if you like abstract concrete space, sorry, negative concrete space, you might think that's clever, clever in a certain sort of way, making us think about what is heart, what is narrative, blah, 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 blah. Or you might just think it's a bit too random. I'm not very clever at all. I don't know. I, I thought movies don't have to be very clever, do they? By definition, they just have to be great. And I do agree. I thought a lot of stops, shots here were stunning, but ultimately I think there was supposed to be some sort of connecting narrative here, but it just didn't come together. Like, you know, Robert Altman's shortcuts. I think he was actually going for that kind of thing where it all seems random, but comes together somehow in very clever ways. I was reminded, you know, of uh, Andy Warhol's Chelsea Girls, 
Don't know if you've ever seen that. No. This had lots of parallels with that, I think, in the intention behind the cinematography, uh, what was trying to be portrayed. I think there was some attempt to get to a real portrayal for whatever that means here. And it was attempted to be gritty in quite, not a vacuous, but quite a sincere, but perhaps over-genuinely way. You know, in terms of the voiceovers, we had kids like chanting nursery rhymes, different kids chanting the same nursery rhyme. We had a kid recording, presumably in in some sort of uh, dictaphone, about who has a pussy, who doesn't have a pussy, who's listening to all the kinds of people that have a pussy. And, you know, there were monologues about child abuse. And then, of course, we had the cat abuse. And so there was all this worthiness, really, that made it a little bit GCSE drama, I thought. There was also the mentally delayed girl who her brother is pimping out. So there there were attempts to show the underside of life in a way that was gritty and realistic, but maybe overplayed it, you know. I, I, but then again, it's a film, you know, it has to focus. It has to focus down on things. And, it, and that's the point. Could you ever portray real life in a movie and make it interesting? Probably not. So I don't know, really. What happened in the end? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> no, the, the, the significant through line in the plot is, I think, the, these two kids who are friends... One of them, I think, is called Solomon. The other one's called Tumbler, I think. They're riding around town on their bikes with air rifles, and they shoot cats, stray cats, ideally. And they take them to this guy who gives them money for the cats' corpses. I think the implication is he sells them to the Chinese restaurant, which is a bit racist, isn't it? A bit. (laughs) And <laughs> that's a very strong implication there. I mean, the black guy that they sell them to just actually say, you know, I usually sell this to the to the Chinese restaurant, but he's retired or something. That's right. Yeah, yeah, he had a heart attack. So it's a bit more than implication, isn't it? You know. And they learn from the guy they're selling this to that they've got competition. Somebody else is killing the cats. There's a few more scenes. There's also a sort of B story about some sisters. One of them's Chloe Savini, who was in Kids, of course. I don't know how to pronounce her surname. I apologise greatly. I also apologise that because the sisters look so similar that I couldn't, if you put a gun to me, in the very unlikely scenario that someone holds a gun to me and asks me who Chloe Savini is. That can be arranged, Richard. I wouldn't be able to tell you the answer, in all honesty. It could have been either of those girls was Chloe Savini. I don't know which one was which. Uh, One of them was much taller one of them was shorter. But and I one don't of them which... taught the other to put masking tape on their nipples and then rip it off violently to make the nipples taut and bigger. Was that why they were doing it? I thought they were just... Yeah. Were they not just getting hair out of their nipples? Oh. I don't know. I was just mentioning reasons you might do that. So there's a B story with those two sisters. They've got a younger sister as well. They end up in an unsavoury situation with a, an old guy in a car trying to molest them. But it doesn't really go anywhere or connect to anything. The two main characters end up meeting their competition in the cat-killing game. Yeah. Who's this kind of emo-y... This was before emo, wasn't it? But he's Way an before e- emo, but yeah. An emo you. kid, basically, as you'd call him now, who describes his life living with his grandmother, who's a vegetable on a life support system. That's right, yeah. yeah. He has to change her nappies and you know do everything for her. And he says that he's poisoning feral cats by the bins to get some money to help with looking after his grandmother. After a few more random scenes have occurred, including, I think, including a cameo by your favourite, the director, Harmony. Oh, I was going to about to talk about that, but you can talk about it instead. Yeah. No, well, you know, you can mention it later, but 
That's one of the scenes. And then yeah. later, those two kids, they break into the house of the kid who's poisoning cats, wearing masks. So I don't know why they're wearing masks, come to think of it. But they discover the his grandmother lying in the bed with the life support machine on. And Tumblr decides there's no way to live, I think he says. And he switches the life support machine off. And then they, they leave. And at the very end of the movie, the black cat that they'd spared early on, because they recognised it was someone's house cat. Well, it was the two girls. And it's, it it's the sisters. sisters. That's the connection, isn't it? It's actually owned. And they, they've put up posters around town because it's gone missing. And at the end of the movie, it transpires that these two have... Well, we don't know that they killed it, actually, but they're certainly standing over the corpse of that cat and they're shooting it with their air rifles to make sure it's dead, maybe. Nowhere to live in the boondocks, yeah. So maybe that's quite a mundane conclusion is that, you know, life in the boondocks isn't all great. Because I mean, from the outside eye, you could be quite envious of these guys, you know, in their in the, in the backward baseball caps and, you know, their retro-logoed T-shirts with the, with the transfer coming off, living lives out on the porch... In, in messy lawns of cheap, semi-derelict homes. Yeah, so I thought there were attempts here to represent this idea, the underside of becomingly small, or becoming post-industrial small-town America. You know, the vast hinterland behind them, that sense of space that you get even in a small town in America, which I think even conventional films like Footloose managed to convey somehow. But did you did it give you the feels, Richard? Did it did it Did it portray to you what what we could be quite envious what looking at these kids, which is, you know, poor kids, there's an infinity of summer stretching out. It's almost post apocalyptic in the way they're living. But there are storm clouds gathering on that vast American horizon for the rest of their lives. And did it give you that feel about you know, time being of the now and, and very much time being the essence, that they only had this moment to live. Did it give you the feels for that or not? It's a film about nihilism, isn't it? Almost like that film, you know, nothing really happens in a way. But at the same time, you know, they're doing some nasty things of the kind that just don't happen in nothing really happens. But they're deeply free, aren't they? Yeah, I think it does express that. Freer than most of us. Very much so. And like I say, there's that scene where the younger kid is downstairs lifting weights, which is made by taping spoons together, by the way. <laughs> in front of the mirror that apparently his dad had used because his dad ah. was a tap dancer or became a tap dancer. I see. His mum is explaining this to dancing. him about his dad. His dad, we presume, has Whoa. died in the hurricane, right? And then mum puts a gun to his head. Yeah. And says what? Dance. Dance boy. Yeah, or smile. She wants him to smile. She puts on her late husband's oversized tap dancing ah. shoes and then she dances. It's quite an effective moment, that. And an interesting That's good cinema, isn't it? Really, from any perspective, you know, there's an expression of maternal love from you know, again, living in not privileged conditions. I mean, mm. she serves him at one point. He's having a bath in the filthiest bath water. <laughs> she serves him dinner in the bath. Earlier, that happens. Earlier, his friend had asked him if his mum fed him or cooked for him. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd mentioned some excellent lockdown food, actually, which we should just dwell on. Toast, lamb chop. His friend asked him if he'd ever had crepe Suzette, and he hadn't. So that's that's the thing they're aspiring to, I think, is a crepe Suzette. But she serves him in the bath spaghetti, which wow. he, he seems to enjoy. Some people like to fill up their bath with baked beans for charity, don't they? But I don't think there's any charity going on here. Yeah, he had no qualms about... I would, 
If you served me spaghetti whilst I was having a bath, I would go mental. Would you? I wouldn't be pleased that you'd done it. Would you throw it across the bathroom? Probably. And have it spatter on the tiles. Take it the hell out of here. I'm not eating. Oh, we can make a movie about that, Richard. And I'm, I'm, yeah, I can direct that. Whilst he's eating, his mum shampoos his hair. Well, and she's not shy well, about getting shampoo in the spaghetti, it seems to me. I don't know whether you read this in Wikipedia. Werner Herzog commented on this. He loved this scene. He thought it was genius. Because if you look in the background, it's not even referred to. If you look in the background of the scene where he's in the bath eating spaghetti, there's strips of bacon are sellotaped to the wall next to the bath. Really? Yeah, really. Yeah. Well, I don't know why that's brilliant, but if he liked it, then Bernard I guess... Bernard Herzog loves it. And, uh, you know, I can certainly you can't see that in most movies, right? That's a unique no, experience. No, yeah. We're heading into Salvador Dali territory right there, aren't we? <laughs> but, yeah, so, I mean, the dwarf, and uh, the d- there's a black dwarf. This is the director, probably... director Cameo. He's not the dwarf, but he oh, is the drunken no, guy. He's a drunken guy with with a black dwarf who's, yes. you know, quite a muscular, attractive black dwarf. And he's kind of making a, a, a drunken pass, Harmony Kareen as his character, making a drunken sort of beer-spattered pass. Yes. I'm mumbling his words. Well, he actually pours point. beer over his head at one point. He does eventually, yeah. yeah. And I thought quite a promising actor, generally. But later we, we see the same dwarf in an arm wrestling contest, and, and it's very accurate. I mean, of course, dwarves have a huge advantage in terms of leverage in an, in an arm wrestling contest, and he wins. Right. Prompting his opponent to be, get really angry, I guess, because he got beaten by a dwarf, and that's when they start beating wrestling, up the wrestling. Wrestling the chair. Yeah. The chair, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. We won't be to that kind of party, I guess, where, where things go. Well, from what you're saying, I mean, I think he was us. actually drunk when he filmed that scene, wasn't he, Harmony? Probably. Ah. Probably the acting wasn't the the thing that was impressing you as so much as him being wasted. <laughs> so, the other thing is, you know, I think there is a strong suggestion of post-apocalypse here. The storyline is set up to, to feel post-apocalyptic. But the, the two lead boys are kind of riding down riding down on their, their adapted BMXs to hunt cats and the music and everything just suggests Mad Max, really, doesn't it, a certain sort of way, or, or that kind of movie. I thought there were moments where there was a sense that time and history had ended in this little pocket oh, yeah. of America. Yeah. And, and somehow the rest of it was continuing and, and, and they were stuck in, not a time warp, but in, in, a, in a different zone that they couldn't necessarily escape. A bit like Yellow Brick Road in that idea. Yeah, yeah. And that was conveyed quite well, I think. So, yeah. I, I'm, I'm kind of talked out at this point. Now, listen, well, you, you've overlooked one of the scenes, which is where quite the, a sisters, few, I imagine. the sisters go and see the tennis player that one of, at least one of them fancies. Because you're playing tennis, aren't you? I am, yeah. He said he could serve at 65 miles per hour, Paul. Do you know what you're doing? What's your serve speed? Well, 65 is not that fast. Let's be clear about that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I mean, like Roger Federer, second serve, you know, being really, really cautious, he's still going to serve at 90 miles an hour. Yeah, but he's like a top-class professional tennis player. Yeah. What are you serving? Come on, you out with it. What's your serve speed? Well, I've only played tennis for a week, Richard, so... Yeah, I, I know. That's why I'm asking you. So I usually serve underarm. <laughs> Okay, you still got the training wheels on, is what you're saying. Yeah. If you were ten pin bowling, you'd have those inflatable. I was going thirty eight, yeah. In the gutters, those gutter guards, wouldn't you? So you serve underarm. There's no shame in that, Paul. No, I don't. I often do though. 
Because it's quite Not difficult to coordinate tossing the ball up in the air, an overhand smash serve, isn't it? And jumping in the air, which is what they do in Wimbledon at the same time. Yeah. How do you get all those three things combined at the right time? How do you get the racket head oh, sure. to hit the ball in the right point? It's, it's, it's very difficult. Do you have one of those I... things on your tennis racket? You know, the strings that coming out just above the handle, where there's like a little, like a blob that gets put on the strings. Yes. You see that in Wimbledon. What's that called? I don't know. That's a good question. Do you have one of those in your tennis racket? What do you call the clicker on a, on a ballpoint pen? The clicker? The button? I don't think you do that, do you? It's a button, isn't it? Hmm. Not all ballpoints have a clicker anyway, a bit. They don't, know. It's always ready. It doesn't need to be prepared. It's unsheathed and ready to go at a moment's notice, isn't it? Yeah. Richard, sorry. Uh, we'll come to some things in a second, but shall we score this thing or not? All right, yes. You start. Uh, hold on, hold well, on. Well, I think we have to Rewind. invent some arbitrary categories because we've, say, not done, we've not done Art House before, have we, really? Well, we have done Art House. We've done Nothing Really Happens. True. It wasn't a horror, was it? It wasn't a science fiction. We invented a category for that, I think. Mm-hmm. Do we do, like, mood or something? Yeah. The feels. The yeah. feels. Yeah. Cinematography, I think, is a, is a valid category here. Uh, script and acting. I think those four. Fine, fine. What say ye? I say, let's go. You say yay. Okay, so let's start off with the moods. Did this do it for you? Did, did it give you the feels? Oh, can I just say, by the way, mm. you complained last time about how much yeah. we had to pay. Well, I didn't have to pay because, of course, I'm friend of Google. Uh, you know, they give me complimentary movie screenings because I simply tell them my opinion, Paul. If you yeah. were to do that, you would have to pay. But this movie, I couldn't find legitimately anywhere. I mean, how did you? Oh, it's on, it was on Vimeo. Yeah, that's not legitimate. That's not. That's someone just ripped it off and put it on Vimeo. <laughs> I didn't know that. It's free, by the way. It is free when you watch it pirated on Vimeo. Yeah, but it was also oh, okay. really poor quality on Vimeo. I mean, it was. It was obviously like taken from. Well, on your seventy-two on your screen, yeah, yeah, it would be. It would be. Yeah, I suppose I should have watched it like you do on your, my bloody phone. It wouldn't. I wouldn't have noticed, would I? Well, to see the big picture, the pictures that you see have to be smaller, Richard. Pixels the size of your fist are on my screen. <laughs> but anyway. I'm not sure. You squint. I'm not you sure it how it harmony envisage people watching it, but there we go. So, all of that said. Well, I think some of it was supposed to feel like lo-fi footage anyway. Oh, yeah, it was. Absolutely. Yeah, there was a whole color. In fact, I think they used every format under the sun. They handed yeah. out Polaroid cameras to people in the town. Some of it was filmed in probably on VHS, some of it was filmed in 35mm, some 16 Yeah, it was a very wide range. Yeah. And again, it's all down to that collage of different styles they're trying to achieve. The, the only thing was, it confused me. I didn't I didn't really figure out whether some of it was supposed to be like flashbacks and memories. Ooh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure there was a, a linear time narrative here, was there? So, Richard, pressing you here, what about the moods and the feels? Did it do it for you? I think it is quite effective at that, yeah. Hmm. It makes you think, doesn't it? It certainly makes you think. Completely unlike less accomplished art housey movies that we might have touched on. Definitely. I mean, he's definitely a talent, I have yeah, to say this. Yeah, you know. yeah. I, I don't think he pulls through on this. He did do on kids. I think kids had real mainstream appeal. It just, it just worked. This one doesn't necessarily for me. It, like I say, it does have that one thing, which is, you know, there's an infinity of pain and storm clouds heading their way of this beautiful American vista. And you can feel them contracting in this summer 
into tight steel balls kind of thing. But they've only got this summer to enjoy themselves. There's that, there's that sense, that liminal sense of innocence and the portals of innocence closing very quickly upon them. And I think it communicates that really well. But I don't think it... The other things it tries to do, which is talk about very serious social issues and, and tries to do that with, with overdubbing, you know, these kids' nursery rhymes and then talking about, you know, coke addicts and the guy next door used to screw the girls for coke and the child abuse and all this stuff. I don't think that that serious side works at all and makes it somewhat gratuitous. Hmm. It's unrelentingly, yes, it's unrelenting. Yeah. It's unrelentingly bleak, isn't it? There's yeah. Very little sunlight in it, except you know the occasional scene. But it's an effective mood communicated. So I'm going to have to give it a seven. I think. Yeah, I think you know if you wanted to know how how kids parted in the early nineties, this is a really good. This is a really good document. This is the part I think. Also, he was trying to document the intimacy of a lifestyle that wasn't necessarily viewable by many Americans at the time. And so for all that, I think it does communicate feels. So I'm going to give it a 6.5. Hmm, okay. Okay. So what about acting? This is what I was prepared to be really disappointed by. Actually, I ended up being quite surprised by how after about 20 or 30 minutes, you just accept it all as, as being, one, very real, but also very real cinema at the same time. It, I think the acting really works. I'm not saying there weren't several moments when when people who weren't, paid actors didn't really fluff it up but it just made it feel like a documentary when they did that mm. so unintentionally I think that worked but I think the paid actors did a good job true to my obsession I think one of the lead males had a very strangely oversized forehead too so <laughs> points for that yeah I think the acting works I'm gonna give it a six yeah your comments are accurate I don't I don't disagree with them greatly is it worth more than a six is what I'm trying to figure out uh-huh. It's a, it is above average. Yes. I mean, there were some bits where, you know, what the actor was supposed to be doing was dubious, like the little boy in the bunny ears. In the bunny rabbit ears, you know. I mean, that's it's asking not, a lot of the kids. That's kid. not acting, though, is it? It's, uh, but bear in mind, these are not like young mid 20s Hollywood actors playing teenagers. No. These are actually, no. I David, think the kid in the bunny ears was 14. I think the wow. younger boy was younger, younger still. So really. They are kid kids. They are kids. Right. They're not improvising. This. They're not coming up with this stuff. They're being told what to do, presumably. I've got to get it. I've got to give it a seven. I think. Wow. Okay. High price to do. What about scripting? I don't know what. I don't. I don't know what it's saying. <laughs> I thought I'd let you go first on that one. I don't know what it's saying. I was thinking. You know, when you're watching this film, I was thinking about why he's making them kill cats. It's the ultimate provocation, like I said, especially in the internet yeah. era. You know. You know. There's that thing. About psychopaths, the dark triangle. The dark, yeah, and the thing, the idea that serial killers have in their childhood, bedwetting, cruelty to animals, and something else that I can't remember. Well, what, what people get wrong about that is the you know A implies B doesn't mean that B implies A, right? So if you go oh, precisely, out, yeah, if, yeah. if every serial error. killer has, if every every serial killer you've ever found has always tortured animals. That doesn't mean to say that someone who talks to his animals is a serial killer. This is a prosecutor's fallacy, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. This is a very famous one about somebody who likes pornography and a murder of a young woman in London. Yeah. And uh, it's like, you know, we're 99% sure that the, the, the man who did this likes pornography. Well, <laughs> yeah, 100% deal. of men like pornography, yeah. you know, so. so. <laughs> and then they actually charge somebody on the basis that they like pornography, you see. Yeah. 
So it does happen, you know, that to judges and and, and uh, police can can have these giant brain farts about B and A and A and B. Yeah, no, it, it's very common misconception. I was talking to a PhD researcher who was talking about this very subject. Yeah, people think that confirmatory evidence is you know supplying them more information, more causational information, which is just not true. You, you, the, the people you need to look at to establish whether or not cruelty to animals predicts, you know, violence against human beings are people who are cruel to animals, but not necessarily have done a murder, you know. And that's a constituency that's not well studied by the criminologists because they're not necessarily criminals, you know. They don't end up in prison being interviewed. Sorry, it's called the McDonald Triad. It's cruelty to animals, a persistent bedwetting, an obsession with fire setting. Uh, most children, actually, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Children can often be cruel to animals, actually, can't they? Because I think, oh yeah, they lack a yeah. sort of a bit of empathy about it. But equally, I think it's a bit of an obsession with our society and mm. American society. I, but I often think they're being cruel and at the same time indulging in play hunting fantasies, and, and play fantasies are often real behaviour for children too. Yeah. So it's after they've hunted the animal that they might be cruel to it before they finally kill it. You know, it's yeah. not necessarily. When adults are cruel to yeah. to animals, I do remember lots of my friends being cruel to animals. One particular boy who was had a russet, kind of bright red hair. He used to catch the frogs and then insert a straw up their backsides and blow and blow into it so that their skin kind of detached from their body. It's been horrible for the frogs. Did you, but, uh, are you sure this happened, or is this, it sounds a bit like a, an urban legend, doesn't it? He, that, sorry, that's what he told us he did. I never actually ah. saw him do it. Okay. Why is it? Does it? Could that not happen? I don't. I don't know. But I think that's a common urban legend that people talk about. Is inflating frogs. But the fact he would big himself up and, and, and you know, want to impress by by talking about how he it says something in itself. Yeah, it's, it says something <laughs> in itself, doesn't it? You know. However, you know, I, I, I mean, I was, I was teaching adults and adolescents maybe 10 years ago, and my Canadian co-teacher banned a 14-year-old boy. He was very precocious. He was learning English uh, out in the Far East. Out in, sorry, out in East Asia. She banned him from the classroom because he talked, he made a joke about torturing ducklings. But like this movie, I think the humour was based on the shock value yeah. of the statement yeah. Yeah. rather than the actions involved in the statement itself. You know, I think... It's strange, isn't it, really? When, when when people suddenly decide that torture to animals and talk about it is... that There's necessarily agency involved in the person describing those things. And there isn't necessarily, is there? There's no... If I'm interested in criminology and, and, and serial killers, I'm not necessarily a serial killer myself, am I? Not necessarily. Although there, although there could be some transform, transformative element to my behaviour in, in that I'm sublimating or transforming some basic instincts, some basic criminal instincts in myself. It's possible, but it's it's not. It, it doesn't follow logically, does it? But Richard, you were what, what? What was the point you were making before? Huge I digression. Huge digression. I've just you just sent me there to a place where I was imagining a far future time where this podcast is being used in court <laughs> <laughs> by our crime biographers. <laughs> the question was about writing, and so the subtlest. Point ah, being made, got maybe, or least subtle point, or the only point that I could detect was this idea that these kids kill cats and then they get to that old lady's house, that grandma, grandma, and they kill house. her too. They kill her and they even like put a cherry on the top by shooting her in the foot with a with a 
a BB gun to test whether she's, you know, sensible, as it were. And, and of course, it's almost portrayed as an act of mercy, what they're doing. They're not being cruel. Mm. They're not perceiving it that way. I don't know. Because for this level of subtlety, I'll give it a five. But there's a whole lot of mess around it that I don't understand. Maybe I'm too dumb, but that's not my fault. I'm going to have to give it a two for the scripting. I I thought some of it worked. The randomness worked in in a certain sort of way. How do you write that randomness? (laughs) Well, I I really think that listening to the narrative and listening to him on David Letterman, Uh. it really is. He's, you know, he's got with his mates. He's got, he's started telling these stories and maybe some stories have happened whilst he's telling stories because other people have come to the party and done the crazy things that he's, he's talking about at the time. And he's got another set of stories to tell. And he's kind of like, he's just set his voice to to film, I think in many respects, and there isn't really a script there. Yeah, that's it. See what you say. Like like Chuck Kerouac on the road, it seems like that's what's happening in the novel also. But there's there's there is an underlying plot and drive to the whole to the whole novel, but it isn't. It's it's very structured, and he 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 chose he chose his dialogue very purposefully, although it does come across as naturalized dialogue. However, here it isn't really naturalized. It doesn't feel naturalised, the dialogue and the script that goes with it. It feels like Harmony's had some quite interesting ideas at times and has tried to jigsaw them together pretty ad hoc and on the fly. So, And that's why I'm marking it down. All right. So cinematography then. It's got to be easy, this, isn't it? Brilliant, I thought. Yeah, I'd give this, I'd give this an eight or a nine maybe even. I'm going to give it a whopping nine. I don't often do that. But it is a new category, so hey. It's got very strong visual style that, you know, I can imagine. I, I can't imagine forgetting this film very quickly. Let me put it that way. All right. Does that leave that us done? with an overall score? It does, yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to round this up to a quite recommendary, if that's a word, it isn't, 24 out of 4. Uh, 24 from 4, which is a score of 6 for me. Yeah. I, I'm going to say 5. Yeah, I can I can understand why. It is an important film in a way. I think it's regarded as it, it's sort of full of its own self importance, and it has become a cult classic. It has become a cult classic. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Obviously, it follows on from Kids, and in a sense, it's a difficult second album, isn't it? It but is. Yeah. The thing yeah. is, it has very little positive to recommend it in the sense that it's not going to leave you feeling that good about about yourself, probably. And it may even leave you feeling like you need a, a shower or a clean bath with no bacon on the wall. Or early Beatles LP. <laughs> that's what I do. Well, Paul, that's been very uh, intellectual of you. Obviously, this is late night Paul, Discord Paul. I can see this ribbing is going to go on for several for several episodes, isn't it, Richard? What? He's found his target. He's He's got the hook in now. And he's going to keep jabbing and jabbing and jabbing until I throw something across the room. I'm going to listen. I'm going to give you two options for movies. So just in summary, can I just before we finish on this movie? Yeah, jarring, not very disturbing. Quite anachronistically attempting to be disturbing at time, but ultimately I thought quite rewarding. You know, I got some feels from it, and that's what you want from an art house movie that's not particularly intellectually focused. He's more sort of. Emotionally focused. Emotionally or sensually focused or sensory focused, you know. Mm. Uh, and this is all about the feels, and it does do that. So, 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 yeah, definitely. It's a world where no men ever wear shirts. That's an interesting thing about 
<laughs> the entire movie. Yes! Yeah. <laughs> uh, only Harmony. Harmony, I think, has the top one. But, Paul, I'm going to give you two choices. Please. Then. Okay, give me two choices for next week's movie, which will be uh, number 49. Wow. Gosh, are we making good progress? Well... <laughs> Some say we're regressing, but... Oh, we're digging a deeper hole. <laughs> Here's my two choices, then. I've suggested this before, but I feel like I've got a counter with something equally arty. So I'm going to suggest David Aronofsky's Mother. Oh, hell. Or Netflix's more recent and much more light-hearted <laughs> zombie epic Army of the Dead. Well, I'm not even going to think about this. I, I'm just going to turn off my brain, become a zombie, and plump for Army of the Dead. We've had a bit too much art house for a whole year. We'll do one next year, okay, guys, if that's the sort of stuff you're into. Army of the Dead, let's get back to normal service. Normal service has been resumed. It's sci-fi or horror, and it's Army of the Dead. Is that okay with you, Rich? It is. Good. Till next week, then. I'm off to make some crepes, Suzettes. And I'm off uh, to... I'm off to drown a toy cat. A stuff a toy stuff cat. cat. Maybe a ta- an already taxidermied cat. Okay, yeah, I'll just start off though and then build up. No, I'm off to see if the McDonald triad is actually true. I thought the McDonald triad was an area where Uber Eats drivers congregate. <laughs> no, it's a triad, so it's Uber, Just Eat, and Delivery. And delivery. They face <laughs> off, yeah. It's a, it's a flick knife fight. Somebody puts West Side Story on their radio or on their on their tannoy system with their little souped-up car, and they flick knife away, just like Will Ferrell in that uh, in that in the Anchorman movie, but with three teams. Oh, there are three teams in the Anchorman movie. Aren't Until the next time. Yes. Sorry. Ass- assuming we don't lose this uh, in the edit. Uh, Which we will now. do. <laughs> Here's the music. Thank you.